Hello, and welcome back. As you probably know, you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, and today's sponsor is Shearwater Sailing, a charter company run out of Monterey by Kevin Wasbauer aboard a beautiful, ocean-capable FAR 53 named Atalanta. And on April 23rd, Atalanta will sail from Monterey north to San Francisco, returning south to Monterey on May 21st, and spots are available on both offshore legs. These single-day trips are a great way to build sailing skills. Or if you'd rather sail here with Shearwater Sailing in San Francisco, you can book a trip to watch the thrilling foiling catamaran race at Sail GP, or book a private charter. Reach out to Kevin at shearwatersailing.net. That's shearwatersailing.net. I'm also excited to announce this week that you can become part of the Out the Gate crew and community by supporting the podcast directly through Patreon. Benefits of joining include Out the Gate swag, I've got a pretty cool t-shirt you can get, extra content, and more. I'll have more details after this week's show, or you can visit patreon.com slash outthegate for more details. Okay, on this week's show, I'm talking with Bernard Donajevich, a local windsurfer who's been involved in the sport since he was very young. Well, the sport was very young as well. He was actually one of the very first people in Argentina to ever own a windsurfer, where he taught himself how to rig and use it on a piranha-infested river. But get this, that actually wasn't the main incentive he had for not falling in. You'll have to listen to the interview to find out what that was. He's raced all over the world and a great deal here locally. He even mounted an Olympic campaign for the Barcelona Olympics, and he still sails about five times a week on his windsurfer. Bernard and I met at the Berkeley Marina, where he often sails, on a clear, cold day and talked about his progression from big, heavy boards to state-of-the-art gear. We talk about how his sailing has changed, but also how the sport has changed and why he thinks, even with the proliferation of all the different kinds of board sailing there, kite surfing and wing foiling, he still thinks windsurfing is the best. Let's jump in. So we are sitting at the Berkeley Marina at the windsurfing area by the Carl Sailing Club, sitting in two beautiful benches looking uh, yeah, towards Emeryville on a lovely 14 knots. I'm surprised nobody's out here yet, Friday afternoon. It's ridiculous because most windsurfers now are doing this wingy thing, I call it. Have you seen it with a wing in the hand? Yes, the wings, yeah, the wing foiling. Wing foiling, which require six knots of wind, which is, these conditions are brilliant for that. And it's either too cold or they're watching baseball. Who knows? There's no baseball <laughs> now, but I don't know. They're not here. Yeah. They will come. They tend they to come, come after 3 p.m. And it's okay. Only yeah, that's right. It's only about 1 in the afternoon. So, so before we get any farther into it, Bernard, I want yeah. you to introduce yourself to our okay. listeners. Okay. Uh, my name is Bernard Dunayevich, 63 years old. So I was born in 1960 right here in San Francisco. But I grew up in Argentina. I moved over there when I was one and a half, you can guess by my accent. 
So I spent all my youth in Argentina. And I said that I'm an American because that's the only thing I am. Yeah. I'm an American passport. And after a bumpy ride with two master's degree, I came back to where I, uh, where I was born. And, um, and now I live in Mill Valley, only 20 minutes away from here. And, and the reason that we're yeah. talking is because I understand you are one of the very, very first people in Argentina to own a windsurfer. I really was. And that was back in 1974. Wow, yeah. you were young. Which I was very young. I was only 13 because it was yeah, January 74. I was only 13. Okay. And I weighed less than 100 pounds and I was five, <laughs> four feet tall. And it was an unknown, unknown sport, both in South America and starting to pick up in Europe. How, how did you first get exposed to it? It's a funny story, but I first got exposed through an ad on TV. A TV ad? For LM cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> it was the 70s. It was the 70s, yeah. and it was this incredibly funky model with a white bikini and this boyfriend with swimming trunks windsurfing on the original windsurfing board in the Caribbean okay. and they have LM logos on their sail and it was a three minute shot of these guys barely moving because in 73 who could use the thing yeah big but boards big boards big sales, heavy yeah. nobody thought there were no schools no equipment but anyways the LM guys thought that it was a good idea they had that ad on TV and I was mesmerized. I thought, this is what I want to do. H had you sailed at all? Did you have exposure to the water? What was it that drew you to it? Brilliant question because, I, no, I was not a sailor, neither was my father. Sailing in South America, you need to be very rich, it's very restricted. But I do have my parents, and I went there, a weekend house on a delta on a delta from the Parana delta downstream from uh, the Amazon northern Brazil southern okay. Brazil and ends up in Buenos Aires before reaching the Rio de la Plata the widest river in the world it's like 200 miles wide wow. on a myriad of small flowing rivers um, which are beautiful, brown water, rivers, nine knots of current. And that's where my parents have a very simple plywood hut mm -hmm. as a weekend house with no water, no electricity. <laughs> no very gas. rustic. Very rustic, but in the most amazing beautiful, lovely place. And would you spend a lot of time there as a kid? I spent a lot of time there every single weekend, and yeah. mostly I spent the three months of school vacation there. Oh, yeah. Barefoot, fishing, rowing, loving nature and the river and getting to know, uh, getting to know it. But not a windsurfing spot. Having said that, when I was 13 and I saw the ad, and then a 
tennis store near my home. I live in Buenos Aires, a 40 million people megalopolis, only an hour away from, from this delta. Unknown, unknown where nobody goes. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful and unknown and quiet. But right by my house in Buenos Aires, this sporting goods store that used to sell wooden tennis rackets for Bjorn Borg and, and Guillermo Villas. I mean, that was what they said. And they had <laughs> on display in their window a, this incredible windsurfing board that it was the LM board. The, oh my saw, gosh. And, I saw, and we were supposed to go to Patagonia for that um, vacation. We couldn't go. And I said to my dad, Dad, please. It costs $200, the whole thing. $200? It's a lot of money. Yes, but includes the sale, the boom, the sale, the dagger board. Uh, could you? Okay. And he agreed. He's a nice dad, and he bought it for me. And <laughs> that's, I, that's wonderful. It's a wonderful story, but that's how then, with a public wooden motorboat that was like a bus, brought it first onto the mainland of that delta, then on the boat to my house. It was very heavy. I could barely yeah. move it. Put it there without never ever having set up a windsurf, seen one be besides the LMTV ad, and never sailed anything at all. So there's no YouTube to go on and nope. look and see how to do this. No in 74. There's nobody else even in your country, really, who you knows how to do this. You said it. How would you figure this out? Well, <laughs> by falling and uplifting and, <laughs> yeah, and, and perseverance and, 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 and love for the feeling that just standing up and holding the sail in your hand, the, surfer, the windsurfing gives you immediately. And it was trial and error. You said, oh, if I move sure, the sail sure, this way, the board will turn. And totally. Not only that, I tell you a funny story, because there's a constant eight knots current coming from the north that tends to go with the wind. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and on a, on a yeah, piranha-infested river. The, the only thing... <laughs> Sounds perfect. Uh, perfect. Perfect to be there. And I live there. I love it. I fish. But I set up this sailed in a very funny way because I can tell the tales I didn't even know how to do it. Yeah. Put it on the water, uh, somehow lift the sail and manage to sail across the 80 yard river somehow I fell turning around and came back. Okay. And I had a super friend, a guy who was my age that was born and raised in that delta. I live in a house without telephone, without water, just like my weekend house right. that has a homemade rowing boat. And he loved this. It was very beautiful, white and yellow sail and an orange board. And of course, being my friend, he would help me. And as I drift downwind, he would pick me up with his rowing boat. We would throw up the river uh, into that's the so, That's a good friend. He was getting a workout. He really was. He was really strong. <laughs> and, uh, and pretty much that's how I learned. Wow. But talking about sailing and windsurfing, mm -hmm. even since 
no instructions, no, no video, no way of knowing. I, by intuition, because the wind was, the, was 15 knots of current, the only way I learned to maneuver was intuitively to tack upwind. I would reach, uh, point upwind, tack, and stay upwind fighting the current. And I never ever thought, learned, or saw uh, anybody jiving. Mm. So for a couple of years, the only thing I could do is reach and tack. <laughs> reach and tack. That's so interesting. And it didn't just it didn't cross your mind to let the sail flop around the other N way. At all. At all yeah. because I would have drifted downwind. Right, right. Until I had a problem with my board and Booby, the guy that built it, uh, by copying the original windsurfer in seventy three and a half, by the beginning of seventy four, I went to his shop that was nearby on the mainland of okay. the Delta, fixed with screws my board because it was a board that had instead of a fiberglass mast uh -huh. they couldn't build that in Argentina there was no technology okay uh, the same with the booms no al aluminum to build it he made it with laminated wood oh wow so it was a handmade super heavy big board uh, what was the board? Was it uh, foam? It, it was fiberglass because the original windsurfer who, who he bought from Germany and brought to Buenos Aires was made out of extruded polyesterine okay. that requires a very heavy uh, machinery that he didn't have access to. Uh, they call it plastic, like the same material that kayaks are, cheapy kayaks right, are made this right. But you require a big heavy machinery. Yeah. Booby, the German guy, bought the original polyethylene board and copied it in his shop with fiberglass. Somehow managed to inject some foam onto it. Okay. When it came time to build the mask, he realized, I cannot build it in fiberglass. We're going to build it with laminated wood. The same with the boom. Forget aluminum. This place were aluminum. No. Uh, the same a teak, it was, we call it teak, it wasn't even teak, it was some Argentinian <laughs> hardwood, hardwood, heavy as hell. And since we're talking about techniques and, and, and material, he forgot when he sold me the board to give me a little piece of rope that was called the in-hole those days. Uh -huh. Down-hole, out-hole, in those very early days, the in-hole was a simple piece of rope that you would attach the front of the boom onto the mast. Okay. He forgot to give to me. Yes. When I stole it for th the first time uh, for the next three months, it was a wishbone boom, meaning it had a stainless steel flat front end, but an open back end that you would tie into a grommet every time you would rig the sail. Okay. So since I didn't have what is called the in-hole to attach it to the sail, I simply slide the wishbone from the back that was open onto a dragon webbing that was an opening on the sail, and the, sail was, and the boom was hanging totally loose, 
hanging on that webbing on onto the sail. So not only were you sailing, but you were probably holding the boom up. I would hold the boom up, but hanging on the, on the, the, on the, the webbing. webbing and on the sail and on the mast, the thing was totally floppy. Things I never seen one. I never knew that this yeah. should be attached. Yeah. Well onto the, that's how I sailed for years. So at this point, you still don't know how to jive. I don't know how to jive. I never seen a, a, a regatta race in my life. And you're sailing with this very floppy boom. How did you learn how to jive? It's a funny story. I fell and somehow it was so sloppy that my uh, mast and the universal that attaches to the board broke. And I was so desperate, I went back to Booby, the, yeah. the guy that built it, and he told me, Bernard, would you like to have a race? A what? Oh, yes, yeah, called a regatta. Oh, are you sure? Yeah. Come to the Rio de la Plata, the wider river, 15 miles from where the delta where I was. My father had to drive me in his car. And then you meet other windsurfers, but then there were eight or nine, because <laughs> it was two months afterwards. Uh, Still under 10. Under 10. And we will race. Okay. And without knowing what a race was and seeing another windsurfer sailor, wow, these guys were sailors. Yeah. Those original windsurfers, they knew. And what a great way to learn. To learn and following them and looking at yeah. them. But because I was uh, 60, whatever, 50 kilos of heavy, and I learned by myself fighting the current. I was very fast on the board going upwind. Uh-huh. So there we start by walking in this muddy river to the starting line, which I have no idea what it was, and somebody with a whistle with boom, 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 and the flags. I didn't know what the flags meant. I guess they moved some flags. Boom, boom, boom. I was like, I didn't want to fall in front of them. I let them all go. I tried to go with them. Yeah, it's obviously was last at the starting line because I was very, very fast. I caught them all up and I passed <laughs> them one by one and I knew <laughs> the windward buoy was. And I arrived there first. There I am <laughs> at now, the window. What do I do next? <laughs> That's the exact <laughs> question. I look at the at the leeward buoy. Those days we raced in the Olympic Triangle upwind uh, reach reach upwind again and downwind and finish upwind. Okay. But when I'm up the upwind buoy, I think, how on earth am I going to poof up to the water? Uh, try to, how can you sail downwind, which is a term I didn't even know. How can you go from here to there? And by the time I kept asking the same question, everybody caught up and passed me. Um, and so I went from first to last. And then I started to lift up the sail again. I thought, ah, that's how you sail, reaching. And the good sailors in front of me were jiving. Oh, what is, oh, you flip the sail like this. And that's how I learned how to jive. <laughs> I love it. I love it because it's so almost counterintuitive, right? So Most people can go downwind really easily. In fact, so I many know. people get yeah, in a yeah, sailboat yeah. and end up downwind you said it. down current and don't know how to get back but you, you said it. <laughs> I, I went backwards i for me jiving was non-existent uh, the most intuitive and basic maneuver was stacking and and sailing downwind was ridiculous so uh, <laughs> so 
I learned how to jive and sail and win in my first regatta, first race by following, being in front and then falling and everything, everybody passing me and checking, whoa, that's how you do it, I guess. And that's how I learned how to jive. Yeah, and you have to say with other people instead of sailing alone in a wider river. Oh my river. gosh. So when did you graduate from that board? How long did you have that board? I've had a board for years, but by 81, 82, uh, yep, six, seven years later, uh, imports opened in Argentina because it was very close. You didn't have any imports from anybody or from one of the upside downs of the economy. They opened the imports and windsurfing has grown in Europe quite a bit. Okay. And they imported this ABS board. And ABS is this has a funky uh, technical name, but it's that wi white plastic that you build toilets out of or, 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 or bathroom things, which is very strong, very light, very cheap, very sleek, but very flexible. Mm. So all these ABS boards that took over the market in Europe and were exported, some of them to Argentina, were used by hundreds, thousands of people uh, because it was a de facto material. Now, by this point, were you were there magazines? Were you getting information and learning? Good question. By then, I was gathering. There was a windsurfing magazine, the mm. original windsurfing, based mostly in America. Uh, it was an American magazine, with. But I used to travel to Europe quite often. I would get Win, the French magazine. I read Win magazine, mm. and I started to learn. That's what I saw Barry Spaniard's new bo new sale. Uh -huh. And the sport was evolving and improving. And in Argentina, there was a group of people, mostly sailors, that graduated into high-performance windsurfers and would trace this fairly sophisticated upwind and wind boards, which were not as good as my, you know, Cronenberg-sponsored first serious board I had, but yeah. I love it and I mixed with them and started racing fairly often on that slower board. When I made the big jump was in Punta del Este in Uruguay, okay. a beautiful seaside resort with a lot of sailors. And by then I was there with my old Peugeot 404 pop, 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 pop <laughs> car that I drove from Buenos Aires and enjoying windsurfing in the ocean, something I've never seen in my life. And it's a mild, protected bay. And with you're ha what age at this point? By then I was 17, 18, okay. oh, a little bit more, sorry, probably 20, 21. Okay. Because it was, uh, yep. I heard somebody coming from the beach, blue harness, I didn't know who he was. I had a blue harness by then. It was this friend of mine, Victor, who became a super good friend who was a windsurfer, but he used to race as a heavyweight, was lightweight, on this type of board, still 12 feet long, but now instead of being flat and made out of ABS, they were round. They have a round bottom, still a dagger board, 
and those were proven to be the fastest sports around. Huh. And hence racing windsurfers were this round bottom board so much faster than the flat bottom boards that the International Sailing Federation, I guess, ISF, decided to create a new class called Division Two for oh, the Oh, because they were so different. So different and better that if you wanted to be in front and to race, you would have one of those Division Two boards. Incredibly fast up wind, complicated to handle on a reach because you would have to kick the dagger board, but way faster than the other ones and miserable sailing downwind because <laughs> they, were, they were like riding a log. Yeah. But that's how I w started to race more seriously. Was uh, on one of those. With those Division Two boards. So by then, the Division Two boards were being developed in Europe. And there were a few manufacturers then, Mistral, that exists mm -hmm, today, almost sure. right now, um, and a few Dutch manufacturers, all made in Europe, with several problems because they were hollow, because they have more than 360 liters of volume, which mm. if you fill it with foam, you may make it very heavy. So they were hollow boards, division two round bottom boards, but they were very sloppy boards until this French engineer from Matra moved from France to Chile and he was incredibly crafted, a windsurfer himself and copied the original high quality European model with a much better technique using sandwich composite on something called IREX those days, a British hard extruded polyesterine, really hard and light, that if you made it into a sandwich, you would create an incredibly strong, high quality structure. Ah. And because labor costs in Chile are $2 an hour, he was able to copy the original model and sell it for now $600 instead of 200 <laughs> <laughs> But you have to go to Chile. And I live at the Andes on Buenos Aires, 3,000 miles away. Yeah. And there were still a lot of restrictions on bringing import stuff into Argentina. And the idea of going to Chile to bring two brand new, beautiful looking boards into Buenos Aires was absolutely impossible. They would have charged us a lot of money in taxes. They would have said, no way. Right. And so I had a brilliant idea. We went with my friend Victor, now super uh -huh. friend, in his old diesel Peugeot 404, pop, 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 up the Andes, 18,000 feet down <laughs> the Andes into Santiago. Uh -huh. And I had the idea of putting a old, one of my old masts on his roof rack and an old boom tied with a rope. And when we were in the, the custom borders up in the mi middle of the Andes, it was snowing, it was high in the mountain. I declare two windsurfing boards by pointing at, there they are, the mast and the boom. And the custom agent. They, they don't know. They don't know. Anyway, <laughs> they never seen the ocean probably because right. they live up in the mountain. So we bought the incredible 
sports, we kind of complicated the story, but they were brilliant and beautiful. And when we drove back a day and a half later, the customs saw us and said, what is that? You need, no, 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 we brought this from Argentina. What do you mean? Yeah, here, look at our form. Two windsurfers out, a mast <laughs> and a boom. <laughs> Two incredible <laughs> brand new boards. The <laughs> board was uh, abandoned after after I started using that incredible board called the Magnum, who was incredibly solid and well-built and fantastic. And I sell that Magnum Division Two Chilean board in the same river where I learned to sail for another few years. Wow. Uh, and race and it was a fantastic lovely world. tell me about the community a little bit so you have this friend victor but where <laughs> tell me about the the, the burgeoning it was just huh? beginning the a little bit about the windsurfing community where was the center of it at that point the center of that was 15 miles north of the buenos aires the capital on the limit of that same delta that i'm used to have my house and where I learned to sail. But that was on the Rio de la Plata, the widest river on earth, discovered by the discover. The Spaniards uh, uh, sailing to there. Yeah. And it, which is a fantastic sailing spot because there's constant light, moderate wind that rotates around from northeast to west, offshore, south gets really windy, and southeast, wind coming from Antarctica. Oh. Yes, very windy, uh, very cold, yeah. and very wavy, because it's a river that is very shallow, and it has a wide opening showing into the southeast, and when those Patagonian Antarctica winds build up, it gets windy and wavy, yeah. and it's and, and you still have a width of uh, three feet, uh, four feet of, 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 of depth. So what kind of, um, were you wearing wetsuits when you were windsurfing? Good question. What's the um, water temperature? When I was 11, I didn't have a wetsuit. Yeah, it warmer no, up in the Delta, I would It's warmer, but it gets cold. Yeah. So what did I use? A cotton sweatshirt. <laughs> oh gosh. A Every time you fall in the water. Yeah, yeah. It was heavy. a one fall. It, the, it, my windsurfing was reduced to falling once. That's why I don't like to fall. I never did it, but I never will. Because if I <laughs> fell, I was so cold, I had to go home. with a yeah. um, uh, so That's a funny story. The invention of the harness that I built for myself was another one. You want I can tell you about what did you, So you saw them in a magazine, or did you see somebody yes, else with one? How did you... I saw it in a picture of a magazine called Barcos, you know, Boats, that showed a, I don't think, it was probably a 390, I guess was the name of that sophisticated dinghy, or a catamaran. Oh, it wasn't even a windsurfer. No. So you adapted the idea. I adapted the idea and said, this is what I want. So for people who don't necessarily know windsurfing, explain yeah. what a harness is. A harness is this concoction that you build around your chest or these days is called a seat harness a piece of cloth and and neoprene that you wrap around your butt or your waist and it has a metal hook that allows you to hook into a line that 
is hanging from your boom as a U, and once you hang in there, you use your whole body mm. and weight of your body and leverage from your height to control the sail, be capable of handling way more wind. Yeah, it must let you sail in much heavier winds. Much heavier wind. Sail better because you trim your sail like a real sailboat. Oh. You relax and you with your back hand. Your arms aren't the muscle anymore, they're just the trim. You said it. Yeah. You just trim the sail. Relax and use your feet to steer, steer the angle of the board. A few years later, foot straps, those little U-shaped things where you would put your feet in so you wouldn't get detached from the board were invented in Hawaii. And with the foot straps and the harness, the sport changed and allowed to go much faster and you do maneuvers and things that in 1974 it was impossible to even to dream. I, I love the fact that you can actually watch the innovation happening. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, on the bay today, it's only been a few years that people have been doing this wing foiling that we were talking uh -huh. about earlier. I mean, it continues to change and change and change and people are harnessing boards and and sails and so many huh? different configurations. It's fascinating. Sure. It's fascinating. And you see it because you read, you heard it, a friend bought it, brought it, invented it, and you see the evolution uh, from materials to designs, from innovations of uh, additional things that you can do. And that's very clear in a very simple sport. Um, a sport that is just a board and a sail, and as Jim Drake, the inventor of windsurfers, said, it's just holding the wind in your hands and moving forward. Mm. A lovely guy, a NASA engineer that I met a few years later, he was involved you know, in designing the shuttle and all that. Wow. But was a windsurfer himself in Los Angeles and was always very innovative and funny and doing funky you know, experimental things. And a few years later, I met him. I used to live in LA and I met him and I uh, follow him and, and they, I used to do videos and I video him and I interview him. And, and he's considered the father of the windsurfer? Yes. What's his name? Jim Drake. Jim Drake, okay. Um, and the windsurfing he invented for all of us was embedded in Marina del Rey, okay. a teeny little enclave in Los Angeles. Sure, yeah, where I sailed into that. Uh, yeah. did, where I used to be a windsurfing instructor on the UCLA Aquatic Center. <laughs> that small world. It's a small world. People might notice a change in sound here because we, I ran out of batteries with my recorder, but the, the phone comes to the rescue here. We're going to continue this interview. Um, so tell me, Bernard, you, you've mentioned sailing, windsurfing in some different places. When did you first leave um, Argentina to, to windsurf in mm -hmm. other places? Well, the Punta del Este was probably the first place in Uruguay, not that far, but yeah. ocean sailing. Yeah. And then in 1978, I moved to Europe um, to learn how to speak in English, as you can hear my British accent. So I was living in London for all of 78. And from there, I traveled to Southern 
France, which I knew was a windsurfing hotspot, and you can even rent windsurfers, incredible. Um, and I tried these incredible 1978 or 1977 models, uh, and they were windsurfing magazines, and they would rent these boards, and the, the sport was really popular in Europe, where you would see dozens, hundreds of windsurfers on the top of BMWs uh, with yeah, Munich license plates, and then the Germans would go to the south of France, and you would be on the train, I was moving with the train on every single lake in Europe. There were 11, 20, 30, 200 windsurfers uh, in every single bloody lake, regardless of the conditions. Windy, flat, no wind. And windsurfing was a sport in the mid-late 70s of playful gathering together and picnicking on the beach and putting in your car and moving to a different lake and barbecuing, drinking beer. And that was what the sport was. Did you learn a lot of new things from all the people windsurfing there? Uh, yes, there were good windsurfers how to handle heavy water, heavy wind, sorry. It was windy. Uh, they were too good for me, I'll be honest, because by then they had sailed <laughs> uh, yeah, those high-quality boards instead of a wooden mass, wooden moon you know, board. Uh, but I did learn a lot, and I totally enjoy using a incredibly sophisticated, lighter board. Oops, and I and I would use um, and enjoy it. But I did learn, and I did learn the passion of the sport, where there were windsurfing shops unheard of uh, mm. until then you could go to shop and they would sell you a board and and, and repair uh, stuff and the people knew and excited customers came in and and, and that was the yeah the development of, of 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 the sport in the mid mid to late 70s and when did you first come back here to california to winter in 1988. Okay. Uh, so in 1988, I was still living in Argentina, but my period there was coming to an end. And I moved back to Los Angeles to get a master's degree in UCLA, where I met my wife, where I became the windsurfer instructor of the UCLA Aquatic Center in Marina del Rey, where windsurfing was invented. <laughs> 14 years earlier by Jim Drake and they have a lot of this original windsurfing boards which was the same one I used copied by this Argentinian guy and that's how I taught hundreds and hundreds of college UCLA yeah undergrads how to how windsurf. windsurf what a wonderful full circle there that's really amazing. And when did you come back to Northern California? You said you were born here in the Bay Area, right? Went back to Argentina, and in 1988 was the time that I came back to Los Angeles. Oh, Northern California, 1990. I arrived into San Francisco in 1990. I knew about Berkeley. I knew about high wind sailing. I knew how popular the sport was and um, 
that's where I started windsurfing uh, in, uh, in Northern California, in the same place we're talking now. Perfect. What was your first impressions of, of windsurfing here as opposed to where else? You'd, you'd windsurfed in Europe, you'd windsurfed in uh, South America, in Southern California. A very high level, very good high wind sailors, a very heavily involved racing community. Again, probably only 20% of the windsurfers used to race, but those who race were very serious, very dedicated, very good, and there was a lot. And there is a local manufacturer who used to make very good boards, mm. and people use his boards for racing. Did you continue racing here? And I continued racing, uh, but amazingly enough, by then the racing class became a Olympic sport, and I did a. Olympic campaign for the Barcelona Olympics of 1990 and aboard again a division two hollow heavy incredibly efficient board but designed to be sailed from zero to 30 knots uh, because that's what Olympic with surfing is supposed to be the Olympic venues are not designed because of the wind and the quality of the sailing are designed for other reasons okay. and we went from South Korea where it was bloody windy to Barcelona where there was no wind <laughs> to Los Angeles where there was no wind either I did a Olympic campaign to race for the Barcelona Olympics I did not win the trials, of course, because windsurfing is just one class in sailing, and only one, the winner of the Olympic uh, trials, goes to the Olympic Games. But by then I was traveling all over America and Canada and South America and world championships with my board that looked like a torpedo. <laughs> During yeah, during the war was complicated because then there was the invasion of Iraq, the first Iraq war, and having this enormous board in an airplane was very suspicious for the airlines. Oh really? People oh. people got suspicious of the board as some sort of weapon. What is that? The airlines would not let me in, and I said it's not a bomb. They wouldn't let me bring it in. They wouldn't let me let it out. It was wow. a complicated time. But it's... so, if you were competing for the Olympics, mm. then you were not professional because mm. those are other mm. amateur. But you were still traveling all over and still doing this very seriously. Very seriously, uh, I took that very seriously, but less serious than those who were not only better than me almost dedicated to the sports and nothing else. I was finishing my master's degree in UCLA. So, so. you did have other things to concentrate on. Uh, nonetheless, windsurfing was still uh, the top of the list of things I care for. And I bought Division Two Olympic board, which was very similar to my Chilean board, uh, made in Austria, and with my a friend that made in LA, windsurfing. In LA, we kept windsurfing on this very difficult board. Very few people went into Olympic sailing, very few windsurfers. But I love it even more, and we travel all over the world 
sailing and competing. That's wonderful. When did there start to be professional windsurfers? I mean, I guess once they could get sponsors and things like that. When did that happen? Interesting. Probably by the mid-80s, the sport developed a different branch in Hawaii, Maui of all places, and in Europe where devoted sailors became professionals, very rich, and in Australia as well, paid by, uh, sponsored by Toyota, big corporate sponsors that would pay them in those days incredible amount of money, all the equipment, they would put it a beautiful billboard for advertising, they would put their logos on their sails and stickers, and it became a professional sport for 60 people all over the world. I mean, I'm not exaggerating how many people got paid to Windsor. No more than 60, but they were in all the magazines and everybody knew about them. I met most of these people uh, through my travels um, and very quickly the sport got divided into the professional paid athletes that were not only very good, they were capable of breaking math and sales and boards every week because they were <laughs> and they just buy another one. Another one. Uh, and those of us who had to pay now two thousand dollars for a whole uh, surfing kit instead of two hundred, and we were more careful, less good, etc., uh, etc. Et and that's how the sport. I'm glad you mentioned Maui because somebody who I met through this podcast and has now become a friend, Barry Spinner, you mentioned earlier, earlier, um, was very involved in sail making for, for early windsurfers. And um, you two got to know each other. Tell me about that relationship. Yeah, Barry is a lovely, incredible person. We were very good friends for quite some time. And I met him through the sails he used to make. In the very beginning, through pictures, whoa, those are strange, incredible designs. And then because I started making videos, windsurfing videos, I was and was traveling to Maui quite a bit to shoot windsurfers. And I knew who he was and I interviewed him. We became very good friends and he had in those days this whole idea of making a film with his adventures and he contacted me and we got together and did a few, quite a few projects together uh, of windsurfing, windsurfing sails, flexible wings. Um, he's so innovative when he's thinking about how, wing, how wings and sails work. It's really... So innovative, so yeah. creative, inventor of so many designs and new things that evolve and move the the sport forward so much and I used to have a lot of his sales made by Neil Pride then he designed for him a manufacturer of Hong Kong who built sales for big boats but they used to make windsurfing sales he was mm. the designer I loved those sales and that was part of the close of, of the loop of Maui Bernard and Neil Pride how did you film um, I'm fascinated by that because um, I mean it depends on when you were filming them. The gear was a bit different, a lot bigger than it is now. Were you out on a board or were you on a boat next to boards? How were you filming windsurfing? A good question. Yes, I, I did all of the above, from helicopters 
shooting from helicopters in Maui and other places with the open door and hanging, grabbing onto the seat <laughs> and leaning outside the window. Don't tell my wife, um, <laughs> although she knows it. Um, to a tripod on shore, to boats jumping with a, with a camera over my shoulder on a waterproof casing. Mm to even before the GoPro was invented, uh, a combination of off the above. So it was uh, dinghies, boats, helicopters, shore, and me swimming. Uh, oh, wow. On, on the waves in Maui. and I mean, Not to get hit. To get hit <laughs> with a helmet, with a red helmet, they don't land on me. Yeah. yeah. And where were, you, um, where were you distributing these films? I have a few different clients. Uh, towards the end, my main client was Spain Rasmussen, who's now the owner of Starboard, the leader, as he calls it, the number one sale and board manufacturer in the world. A guy I knew about because he was the Norwegian representative uh, in the Olympic Games. And I met two yards away from here, in Berkeley, <laughs> where he was coming from a convention in Las Vegas. He was living in Thailand. He stopped here. He came out. I knew who he was. He was so surprised. And I said, do you want me to make a video for you for your very small, limited company called Starboard? Not limited, but very small then. Yeah. And he said, really? Sure. Um, he had he was developing a board in Hawaii, and I offered him I'll go to Hawaii and shoot this starboard Hawaiian uh, Thai board for you, and I send you a VHS copy to Bangkok when I'm done. And him, being an honorable, incredible, intuitive guy, looked at me and said, "Are you sure?" I said, "I will. I promise I will. I'll make the video for you." And that's how I started my relationship with him. And I stuck with him from the very beginning of that company for a lot of years, shooting in now Maui on a company that was growing with not the original two sailors that sell his boards, but with an incredible team of windsurfers from all over the world that would congregate and meet in Maui for a photo shoot for two weeks. Uh, in the middle of, uh, yeah, in, uh, in the beginning of the year, where he was developing his new line for that year, and these were prototypes that he was testing and having to do a promotional video and taking pictures. And that's where I would come onto a little helicopter and shoot from the air and shoot the windsurfers with a tripod from uh, the beach in Maui and jump onto the water or jump onto the board itself, much to the surprise of the windsurfers. So I was there, I weighed <laughs> 120 pounds, and these Norwegian super strong guys were looking at me down onto the board. What are you doing here? I was shooting upwards onto his hands, into his feet, into the water. And I, I, was, love <laughs> I love it, I love it. So how often do you still get out on a board? I go up very, very often, and I come here to the Berkeley Marina, uh, let's say five times a week. Wow. So, yes, because 
Windsurfing is still my life. Do you have your gear right now in your car? I didn't bring it because I'm doing a podcast today. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Maybe we should have been doing it out on the water. <laughs> probably, probably. You hang your, your, your iPhone from, from, you know, from a dinghy. But anyways, uh, yeah, I do come very often. As I re- was remembering yesterday, in 1974, the original sticker for the Argentinian windsurfer that I had in my room was windsurfers do it standing up <laughs> and and you laugh and my wife laughed but that was the original I didn't understand the meaning of course I was working <laughs> and I didn't, barely spoke English but uh, I have that sticker by my head on my wall for for years what is it when you're out there what is it for you what does it give you it gives me an incredible pleasure of loneliness and physical activity and contact with nature where all you do is you hear the water hitting the board, the wind flowing through your hair, the, the eventual splashes of water, and you see the pelicans and the roots and fish jumping as your body is fully engaged and you hook into that harness grab onto the boom and let the ball move and you simply with very subtle movements control the angle you want to sail and the places you want to go it's a fantastic sport it's a fantastic sport that doesn't injure you it makes you strong it makes you happy it allows you to be out there enjoying the outdoors and the feeling of sailing on a very simple craft, which is the simplest craft you can imagine. And that's what it still gives me, and that's why I still love it. Bruno, what haven't we talked about that you would want people to know about you or about windsurfing in general? I don't know. I have a lot of other complicated stories. Uh, well, well, we'll have to do another interview. Exactly. We'll do it in another interview. All I could say to those listening to this podcast is that if you haven't windsurfed yet, give it a try. The boards these days are very stable, very easy to handle, very light. They don't require tons of wind. And it's not a sport for the youth that jump and loop and do these crazy things. That's one aspect of it, but not the only one. It's still an enjoyable, simple, portable sailing craft that you can take to many places uh, around the area you live and enjoy it by yourself, with friends or family. And I would say, go for it. It's still out there when surfing is fantastic. One last question. There, so now there's so many different sail sports to choose from, you know, kite surfing, as we talked about before, and the wing foiling. Why would you say to people, try windsurfing over those other ones? Because for me, still the original and simplest craft is still the best. That feeling which is hooking and hold on is unique. And I've seen through the 50 plus years of windsurfing, many new crafts come and go, many new disciplines and sizes and different types. And I know that now wing sailing is 
the thing of the future and what people do and what the manufacturers are interested in selling because that's what people buy. But trust me, still nothing touches a windsurfer. Thank you, Bernal. Well, what a wonderful note to end on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and we're going to have to talk again and get those other stories. Of course, I'll be here and willing to tell you those stories. That's it for this week's show. As I mentioned at the top, I'm excited to be building a Patreon community around Out the Gate, and I'm welcoming you aboard. Become part of the Out the Gate crew by subscribing for $5 or $10 a month and get benefits such as a cool Out the Gate t-shirt, extra content, live chats with me and possibly show guests. And I want to personally thank the very first patrons who've already signed up, David Bangsberg, Ross Jensen, and Robert Larson were some of the very first to join the crew along with Rebecca and Jonathan Shaw, people who I know pretty well. Sign up at patreon.com slash out the gate. That's patreon.com forward slash out the gate. All one word. I'll also add a link in the show notes. I'm your host, Ben Shaw. Thanks again for listening. You can reach me on Instagram at outthegatesailing or email me directly at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Until next time, smooth sailing.